Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, took, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows that she is pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road ashore. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, now you are pregnant. And you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will against him, and he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, "Now I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well there is called Bir Lahai Roy, which is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the, gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thanks. Thanks, Rich. Let's, um, let's pray together, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at that more together. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that we have a chance uh, with freedom, without fear for our lives, uh, to come here today to meet, to open up your word, to read it out loud, and for it to be proclaimed to us together, that we might know and love Christ. Lord, help us not to um, neglect that great advantage we have. We've heard this morning how millions upon millions of Christians could not do what we're doing today. Uh, in fact, they're dying to be able to do this. So, Lord, would, would we enjoy this privilege? Would we feed on it? And would we make the most of it together? And would your spirit work powerfully through it, we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know uh, if some of you managed to talk about that question that went up uh, on the, the board, where you, where you have taken a situation into your hands, and it hasn't quite gone as you had hoped. Uh, does anyone want to, I didn't say we we're going to give a chance to share it, but has anyone got a brief one they want to, to share? Uh, I've got one of mine in a minute, so um, you can embarrass yourself with me as well if you want. Situation that you took into, you took control of. Where are we? Oh, Toby, yes. 
Okay. Okay. That's quite a deep one, mate, but thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine's much lower, don't worry. But yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, okay, that's a really good example of going for something that you thought you could do and actually over time it, it, it didn't work out and it, it didn't work out in the right way. Uh, any, any others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four minutes on YouTube world is, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you're with me, brother, because my, my story is a DIY one. I thought, I thought we might get a few of those. Um, a few years ago, one Saturday afternoon, I decided to have a go at a bit of um, electrical wiring at, at home, uh, rewiring a light circuit and some switches uh, and stuff. And you know what? It was going all right. I, I'd done a few switches, and, and things were going okay, and everyone was alive, and and then I opened up the last switch that I had to do to finish this job. And uh, most of the switches I'd opened up had three or six cables in. I could work out what was going on and do the right things with the cables. This one, it was just like, I don't know, 15 or 20 cables just like, they were all, they were all being pressed in by the switch. And they just kind of like sprung out all over the place. And uh, I had no idea what was going on. And so I had to call, you know, Saturday afternoon, I had to call the electrician emergency weekend rate. So you're absolutely paying through the roof. And he came in. It took him an hour to sort out, in fairness. So I'd created a right mess. But, um, but you know, it's that kind of thing. You, you try something, you, you, you take hold of a situation, you think you can, you can sort it, and, and, and you can't. And, and that can happen. DIY is a good example. But it can happen in more serious things, in the workplace, in family life, in relationships, in, in major life decisions. And that can have much bigger consequences. And, and that's what happens really in, in this episode from, from Abraham's and, and Sarai's life today. And one thing that strikes me about the story of, of Abraham is that for a man who is a great example of faith, who indeed is the father of faith, he sure seems to struggle with doubt and, and unbelief and, and, and faithlessness a whole lot. And in fact, the events of Genesis 16, which, which um, Rich read to us, basically have no redeeming features for him and his wife, Sarai. It's, it's just an absolute monumental cock-up. And the, the, the consequence of this just reverberate for thousands of years. This one decision that they make today just impacts millions of people down through history, causing untold misery and bloodshed. And that's just from one bad call that they make in this text today. And yet here's the thing, okay? Chapter 15 last week and chapter 17 next week, we'll see, are these two promises just full of the big, uh, two chapters full of the big promises of God. In 15 and 17, God reiterates and he reaffirms his promises and what he's going to do for Abraham and how he's going to achieve these things. And sandwiched in the middle of these amazing chapters of promise, here's Abraham and Sarai. He's been an absolute tool and just making an absolute mess of everything. And it makes me think, maybe there's hope for me yet. Because God is not only a promise-making God, but God is a promise-keeping God. And here, as they take things into their own hands and complete chaos and disaster follows, they do not fall beyond God's grace and God's uh, ability to redeem their situation. It's greatly comforting. It's greatly reassuring for us as we think about the situations of our lives that we might feel have fallen beyond restoration because of us or because of others taking things, taking the bull by the horns and taking things under their own control. And we feel like this situation is a mess. Yet it's never beyond the work and the grace of God. 
In the first half of, of this story, we really see the chaos of our faithlessness. This is the defining mess-up of, of Abraham and Sarah, Sarah's life. It's this great fall with significant consequences. We saw a few weeks ago, basically, Abraham got away with one in Egypt. He made some pretty ropey choices in his time in Egypt, but he kind of, God kind of got him out of a hole there. This time, he follows through and just totally, uh, as a mayor, basically, as he, as he follows through on his, his plans and, and, and his bad and faithless schemes. And this is how it unfolds. He's 85 years old, and they've been living in Canaan for about 10 years at this point. Uh, and they've been settled in Mamre near Heb- uh, Hebron for that time. And they're there, remember, because the promises of God, God's people in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. And, and, and they're in the place that God's promised to them. And, and by all accounts, they're, they're pretty blessed and pretty wealthy and doing okay for themselves. But the promised son, the people bit, just doesn't seem to be happening. And so much hangs in these promises of God to him on this family, on this son, on this offspring that's going to come. And they're they're, they're not appearing. And so there's 10 years have gone by and there's no sign of movement on the baby front. And Abraham knows this is key. That's a long time, isn't it? A long time to be waiting in hope and expectation. God seems to be very slow here. Very slow on the whole promise-keeping thing. Abraham and Sarai are getting a little bit tired, a little bit impatient. Especially for Sarai. She's not only waiting here for something that I I think and imagine she really, really wants herself. She's not only just waiting to fulfill a key part of her calling as a wife in in a culture where a childless wife is a tragedy and she would feel left behind. But she is waiting for the promise of God to be delivered on in her life. And for all of the encouragement of God repeating his promises again last week, maybe Abraham and Sarai are just starting to wonder and think, is God all talk and no action? Yeah, God, what are you actually doing about it? It's good enough saying it, but what are you actually doing here? The way this story is retold, I think there's real sympathy for their situation and, and for this dilemma. And Sarai's battle particularly is understood, but not the way that she goes about responding to it. In verse 2, Sarai says, The Lord has kept me from having children, which is absolutely true. He has, but you can kind of just hear the sound of accusation in it, can't you? Sarai figures, well, listen, listen about maybe we need to give God a helping hand here. So she comes up with this plan. Not, I don't have children, but what I do have is, is, is a, a slave uh, that we acquired in Egypt. So let's get creative. We can work something out here. And in the norms of the, the culture of their day in the ancient Near Eastern world, um, what would normally happen is that if a wife hadn't born a child within two years of marriage, then a, a thing they did in that culture was she would buy a slave, give the slave to her husband, so he could sleep with her, they could have a child, and then they'd sell the slave on. And, and that would be a way that they would build a family. And a wife would, would do that in that culture in that time. It was a form of surrogacy of their day. And, and so what happens here, Sarai and Abraham, they turn aside from patiently and expectantly waiting on the Lord to deliver on his promises in faith. And, and by their own power, and according to the worldly wisdom of the, their day, they intervene. And so Abraham takes this woman uh, 
uh, Hagar as his wife. They, they probably told themselves, listen, the ends justify the means, don't they? And, you know, Abraham, the promise of God was that you would have a son. It wasn't anything explicitly said about me, Sarai. So technically, I guess this is a way that you're having a son. And maybe this is the way God will deliver on the promises and build your family. And so you, you can imagine all of the ways they justify and all of the ways that they kind of work it out to themselves. But in the end, it all amounts to trying to do on their terms and in their way what God has promised to do and God alone can deliver on. Now, it's worth noting a theme that's cropped up through Genesis uh, several weeks now, really. And it's this, that so often sin and faithlessness appears to be wise. It appears to be sensible and reasonable. It appears to be, what everyone else would say, the best thing to do in this given situation. Back in the Garden of Eden, the fruit that Eve saw in the tree, we're told, was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Mike helped us see a few weeks ago in Genesis 13 how as, as Lot looked out, and Abraham said, listen, where are you going to go and where am I going to go? Lot looked out, and he saw this well-watered land like the garden of the Lord. And he chose to live there. Of course he did, because that's what makes sense. That's logical, according to the ways of the world and, and you know, all of these things. It, here in chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah, they've waited five times longer than the custom of the day. For, to be childless before they've made this, this move. You could think, surely that's patient enough. Surely it makes sense to get on with your surrogacy plan now. But at the end of the day, it's not trusting God. It's living by and for something else. It's, it's a do-it-yourself spirituality. And as reasonable as it looks, and as sensible as it might seem to people around and to the cultural customs and the way the world works, in the end, it's faithless and it's folly. And there's no place for God. And here, they make a move that is not God's will. It's not how God's going to deliver on his promises to Abraham. And it's not according to God's blueprint for marriage and family life that's clearly set out in Genesis 2 and upheld elsewhere in the Bible. Abraham and Sarai, in their scheming, their planning, create this, this marital triangle, the first kind of three-way marriage relationship, polygamous relationship we see in the Bible, and it is not good. And what follows is this chaos and this unraveling of relationships, and it's just totally destructive. It's not a happy family. It's just a really sad story. Hagar conceives, and so she begins to despise Sarai probably because of all of this mistreatment she's had, but maybe there's some pride in her that she's the one who's bearing the child or, or whatever else. Sarai blames Abraham. This is your fault that she despises me. Abraham does the honorable thing and basically says, nothing to do with me, not my problem. I just did what you asked. You've got power over her. Do, as you, do whatever you like. Do as you please. And so Sarai ill-treats Hagar deals harshly with her, and Hagar flees. This poor, this pregnant woman on the run in the desert of the ancient Near East. And as she flees, with her flees, Abraham and Sarai's plans 
for this great family and delivering on the promises of God. She runs away with Abraham's unborn child, this one that's going to be the blessing of of God's promises and, and the hope of the future, and he disappears out of sight into the desert. What an absolute mess. What chaos unravels when we try and figure out life's problems on our terms and by our plans and in our power and our ways. This is the pattern of Genesis 3 just repeating itself over again. In fact, this story is retold as almost like a retelling of Genesis 3 again in the Garden of Eden. Abraham is just like Adam. Abraham receives the word of God and the promise of God and the instruction of God, and he fails to remember it. He fails to hold on to it and hold fast to it. He's passive. He kind of steps back. He doesn't keep his family safe in the promises and the purposes of God. He's carried along by by the plans of his wife. And after everything's gone totally wrong, he just abdicates responsibility. Like, what are you looking at me for? Not me, your, your, your problem, your situation. He's missing in action as a man of God. Sarai is just like Eve. She's she's enticed away from the plans and the purposes of God. She's drawn to grasp hold of things in her own wisdom and power, and she leads Abraham into that. Here, she she takes Hagar, and and she she brings her to Abraham, just like Eve took the fruit and brought that to Adam. And then, of course, she blames Abraham for the fallout of her plans and her schemes. And what was once a happy family here is just tearing apart at the seams. This is the fall of Abraham and Sarai. And it is a mighty and a great fall. And this is the way of the will of people and not the promise of God. And when we follow that way in our lives, it leads to what we read in Galatians 4 is a life of spiritual slavery. and Not a life of freedom. And flourishing in the plans and the purposes of God. So now I want us to, to think, each of us, in our own mind and heart for a moment. What are the promises of God that you struggle to receive by faith? And instead, that you live like you've got to get hold of them by your own power. What promises of God are you trying to take hold of in your own way? Rather than receiving by faith. You know, we're promised in God's word that in Christ we have free and full forgiveness for all of our sins, all of our wrongs, all of our failings. And yet so often we punish ourselves, don't we, after we've done some wrong or we feel like we've got to earn our way back to God in our own way and by our own strength after we've done something wrong to get forgiveness on our terms rather than receiving forgiveness as a promise of God by faith. We are promised If you're a Christian, this is a promise for you today in God's word, that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is yours right here, right now. And yet, so often we're not sure that we can definitely rely on that promise. And so we try and create a life of as much blessing as possible our way and on our terms in the here and now, just to make sure that we're helping God know what's good for us and what a life of blessing looks like. And God, I'm just going to take hold of this and just take hold of that and take hold of this over here because I can't trust your word when you say you've got every spiritual blessing for me in Christ and that's enough. Or what about this promise? The promise, again, for us in God's words you have a Christian that nothing, not one 
thing can separate you from God's love in Christ. Nothing can separate you from his love in Christ. And we think when we've had a bad day, we messed up again. That thing has separated us from God's love in Christ. And so I've got to follow up a bad day with a good day before I can feel loved again or I can feel sure about my place in Christ. Trying to take hold of God's promises in our own ways and on our own terms. Trying to get the blessing and the life of God in our ways and our terms. It's the tale of the modern world and modern society. And it's not the way we get it. We receive the blessings of God by patient faith. Believing his word of promise. Trusting that it's true, living as if it's true, and receiving all that he has promised to us. We all, in various ways, replace God and his plans and his purposes and his ways at the center of our lives with our plans and our purposes and our ways. And the inevitable outworking of that, as we see here, but we see it in our lives as well, is that it makes absolute chaos between us. You know, the planets of the solar system, they, they, they orbit the sun together. And it's the gravitational pull of the sun at the center that makes the, planet, the orbits work and, and makes everything work in, in, in sync in, in the solar system. And so too with our lives. They only work alongside others when we share that same center of gravity of, of, of who God is and his purposes and his promises. The God who knows us and loves us and has made us. And when that's lost, and we put other things at our center, if you like, the center of our gravity, then, then stuff just starts to spin out all over the place. People start to hit into one another. And there's utter chaos. And there's some serious casualties as a result. This is the chaos of our faithlessness. And it causes things to splinter apart and to destroy and to, to fall apart that are meant to stay together. So that's, that's the bad half bit of this story. Here's the, here's the good, good half uh, story, and it is, it is really quite amazing. The restoration of the Lord who sees. See, what we've seen so far, it's all about Abraham. It's all about Sarah. It's all about their faithlessness. But this second half is actually the focus shifts to Hagar. And to God's grace, bringing back and, and, and restoring and putting back together what has fallen apart into disarray. Now, verse 7 is the turning point. Please do look down at it there on page 16. This is a beautiful verse. It's full of tenderness and grace. Let me read it to you. Just remember where we're at in the story. The angel of the Lord found Hagar, near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where, are you, where have you come from? And where are you going? Hagar, who has been so abused, so mistreated, so taken advantage of by Abraham and Sarai, she was enslaved by them. She was trafficked away from her home country and her own culture and her family. She was pressured into a forced marriage. She was pressured into sex and, and this surrogacy uh, relationship. She was then ill-treated and dealt harshly with and, and rejected. She, she was referred to as my slave and your slave, not even using her name as they abused her, as they depersonalize her and take advantage of her. She's forced to flee when she's in the most vulnerable situation of her entire life. A poor, 
pregnant woman wandering the harsh desert conditions of the Near East. All alone carrying this unborn child. That's what people have done to her in the situation they put her in. So many great wrongs committed against her. And this Hagar, at this point and this moment, alone, desperate, carrying all of the trauma of this, all of this abuse, all of this experience. And we read that the Lord does these five things. The Lord pursues her. He draws near to her. He, he, uh, that's one. He hears her. He sees her. He speaks to her. He calls her by name. And fifthly, he shows himself to her. These five acts of grace and loving kindness for her in the midst of this absolute crisis. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar. And he does these things for her. And through these five things, these five acts of grace and loving kindness, he comes to comfort her and he comes to restore her. There's this just beautiful, tender moment in the midst of this crisis, this chaos, where the Lord brings some peace and some comfort. You know, when it gets as bad as it can get for you, when it seems like nobody is there for you and, and nobody's able to help you, when you have no idea on a way forward and all hope is lost, when it feels like you are in free fall, this is the ground beneath your feet. These are the arms, the, the, the wraparound, the everlasting arms, the loving kindness and the tenderness that God has for you. The purposes uh, that God has to restore you and to bring good from the situation you're in. When God's people as a whole hit rock bottom, much later in the story than this, and they hit their lowest ebb in the Bible story, God sent a spokesman to them. And the spokesman came to own up to the sad and the dark situation they were in, the reality they were in, but he also came to speak these amazingly encouraging words to the people of God. And this is just at the absolute bottom at the pit. Yeah. I, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. It's because of the Lord's great love that we're not consumed. It's because his compassions never fail. It's because his mercy and his grace is new every morning. Therefore, we wait for him. Now, now we see it in, in Hagar's experience. She hasn't got many options, quite frankly. So what she's doing is she's heading back to Egypt. It's the only place she knows. And she's close to the border at this place called Shur. And she rests by this spring in the hot Middle Eastern desert. And it's there that God draws near. Um, and we see it in, in verse 7. It's the, um, uh, the angel of the Lord that comes uh, to her. And in verse 13, but we see this. We see that she realizes that this is God himself. 
This is, this is Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of Abraham. This is God himself seen in, in human form, coming down to his people to draw near to them. Most likely the second person of the Trinity, who later in time will come down again and take on our flesh and our blood in the fullness of human life, who will once and for all fully draw near to us and enter into our experience to comfort us and to restore us. Now, in this conversation that happens between the angel of the Lord and Hagar, God firstly tells her to go back to Sarai and to submit to her. He's calling her to allow herself to be afflicted. And you might think, well, that seems harsh. That's not the, sort of, that's not the first move in the trauma playbook, is it? But God has his plans for her. And where else can she go? And the Lord has heard of her misery. He has um, listened to her affliction. So the son she's going to have is going to be called Ishmael, and that means God hears. And with this comes a direct promise from God, which is an incredibly rare privilege for, for Hagar to have. Her, her descendants will increase too, and they will become uh, too numerous to count, just, just like Abraham's. Uh, but her son is going to be a wild lad, and, and he will live in hostility with his brothers. This is, if you like, the parody of Abraham's promise. This is the dark shadow of the promise of Abraham due to his faithlessness. Ishmael, her son, will go on and father, tw uh, father 12 tribal leaders. Just as in the family of Abraham, there'll be twi 12 sons and 12 tribes. But what's going to happen is this is going to lead to this, this conflict that runs through history, through many millennia and much bloodshed. So there's blessing for Hagar that God has for her. But, but the curse of the sinful course that has been set by Abraham is not totally reversed in this. Now, however we might instinctively feel about what the angel of the Lord says to her and what happens here, Hagar feels seen and she feels known and she feels loved. And so she dares to give God a new name. I think she's the only person in the Old Testament with the audacity to do that. She says to God, you are Elroy. The God who sees. And this place we're in is, is Beer Lahai Roy, the, the well of the living one who sees me. It's just like those beautiful words of Psalm 139 that Callum opened with, isn't it? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You're the Lord who knows, the Lord who sees, the Lord who is close at hand. In fact, it isn't just that God sees Hagar, that he's heard of her misery, that he's drawn near to her in his grace and his love to comfort her and to restore her. But it's that she herself has seen the one who sees her. She herself has seen God. He sees her. He sees the situation. But in the midst of that situation, she sees him. He shows himself to her, appearing as the angel of the Lord's. In the midst of that crisis, in the depths of her trauma and her suffering, she has seen the Lord who has made himself known to her. And what restoration there is in this moment. What strength is taken and what strength we can find here. And what hope and what grace. 
We are seen, yes. We are known, yes. We are loved, yes. We are drawn near to, yes, by God in the midst of the situation that we are in. But all that we might see and know him. That we might know that he is with us. That we might find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And so having had that experience that Hagar has out in the desert, she she does what God says. She goes back to Abraham and, and Sarai. In the course of time, her son is born. Clearly, she's told Abraham about this whole encounter because he says, yeah, the, the boy is going to be called Ishmael, and that's according to God's will. And so for now, at least, some, some degree of peace is restored. But the issues created here by Abraham and Sarai are going to continue. We'll see it later on in the story. When Isaac's born, it all kicks off again. Hagar finds herself fleeing again in the desert again with her son fearing death. And as I've said, for generations, these issues are going to continue. Guys, we too get caught up in the mess and the chaos of life, don't we? Situations in this world around us, whether they're created by our own fault in some ways and our own bad judgment cause and and errors and sins and things we've done, or whether they're created by others around us. We all get caught up in this stuff. God sees, and he knows, and he comes to us to comfort us and to restore us. In the person of Jesus, let me remind you of of his story. The eternal God took on human form. And in Jesus, once for all, he has drawn near to you, And he speaks to you. And God reveals, he shows himself to you. And he shows that he understands your experience. See, Jesus has lived the life that we live. We read that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. His Genesis 3 parallel story ran very differently. In his temptation in the wilderness, it ended with Satan retreating with his tail between his legs because he couldn't cause the Son of God to fall. He couldn't get him to forget the promises of God. He couldn't get him to shortcut God's plan for his life and and grab hold of everything here and now in his way and on his terms. And try as he might, he could never bring Jesus down or or, or pull Jesus aside because Jesus was faithful and how uh, how fast the promises of God right through to the end. He followed the purposes of God all the way through to his death on the cross. And so following his death, Jesus rose up from death three days later and he ascended up to heaven, to the throne room of God, so that now, today, today, Jesus is the living one. He is the living one who sees you. He is the living one who draws near. He is the living one who cares and who loves. He's a great high priest who can feel sympathy for us in our weaknesses. And so we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And because Jesus has risen and ascended, he lives forever to intercede for us, to to bring our requests and our needs before God on our behalf. And he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. This is someone who truly meets our needs. One who is holy who is blameless, who is pure, who is set apart from sinners, 
who is exalted above the heavens. This is the living one who sees and who draws near. This is where we find strength to do hard things that God calls us to do. Jesus, the God who sees, who gets it, who draws near and who comforts and who gives strength and who restores. Now, right now, we wait for Christ to return to bring his promises and his plans and his purposes to fruition. And what we are to do, this is where we're closing, in patient faith, we're to trust in the promises of God. We're not to take things into our own hands and, and, and grasp after things in any way, but we're to depend on God. And as we do that, we're to be sustained. We're to be kept and we're to be helped by Jesus, our great high priest. Now, this is like a well of water in a dry and hot desert for our souls. Drink it in and be refreshed. And so we can go another day trusting in him, hoping in him, and finding our strength in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you know each and every one of our situations, you know, each and every one of our, heart, uh, our lives, what has gone before and even what is to come. You know our hearts. Lord, I don't know that of every person here by any stretch. Lord, in truth, we struggle to know ourselves. Lord, thank you that you know us and you love us and you draw near to us in love and in grace. Would each of us experience and know that in the ways that we particularly need to experience and know that today? It's my prayer that each of us would then be able to live with renewed strength and renewed focus on you, whatever our situation, whatever tomorrow holds. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. We receive it now. Amen.